Hello and welcome to another edition of the Mental Health Shelf podcast. My name is Jamie Skinner and in this podcast I invite guests from all different backgrounds to bring and discuss five items or symbols which they believe have brought them joy, escape or have generally contributed to good mental health in their lives so far. These items can be absolutely anything the guest wants, tote bag, car key, pack of biscuits, wedding ring... Those are actually realistic items for once, I feel. Uh, And then they get put on a non-existent shelf called the mental health shelf, something to metaphorically look to when things are getting a bit stressful. This month, I'm joined by comic writer, artist and performer Kev F. Sutherland, whose career is filled with variety. And a lot of it seems to lean into the kind of things I like to ask about and delve into on this podcast. So, of course, I'm looking forward to delving into that with him. A good deal of variety in his career indeed. In fact, you'll probably hear me talking about it in the introduction to our conversation. So let's just get into it, shall we? Enough of this build-up. Here is the mental health shelf of Kev F. Sutherland. It's wonderful to welcome onto this month's edition of the Mental Health Shelf podcast a comic artist and writer who has drawn for Marvel, the Beano, and graphic novels adapting Shakespeare and the Bible. For five years, the producer of the UK's Comic Festival, the creator and performer of the Scottish falsetto Sock Puppet Theatre, and one of the people behind the sitcom trials, Kev F. Sutherland. Welcome. Hello, and thank you for having me. And it's appropriate. I don't know if anybody can see the photo from our Zoom recording, but um, behind me, I have shelves and shelves and shelves. It's all shelves today. So how very appropriate, the it, annual shelf. It is. There's a huge, what I'm presuming is very eclectic selection right behind you. Hopefully we'll dive into a bit of that at some point. Um, for the moment, though, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, yes. I have been busy through the year. Um it's that time of year, we're recording this in December, where you do a lot of looking back over the year. And uh, one of the things I'll be doing very shortly is uh, looking back over my TV, amassing my favourite TV of the year, which is always very unfair to anything that comes out in December, because it very rarely makes the cut, because you've written the list by then. Uh, but yes, uh, I've been enjoying a busy, busy year. You're a very busy person by the sounds of it, and just reading some of the things you've done throughout quite a varied career uh so far mm. a lot of it seems to have been you know, stuff like the comic festival the sitcom trials and you do comic master classes for schools a lot of it seems to be I, I don't know if you would agree pretty experimental or stuff that's trying to bring these things sharing your passion with a new audience is that something that you try to do yeah yeah because i'm a popular entertainer and I've always found being a popular entertainer, the, the starting point is you've got to reach lots of people with what you do. And writing and drawing comics is what I did first and always wanted to uh, write and draw for the comics that most people were reading uh, most of the time. Uh, so I, I was reading sort of Marvel comics as a kid. And so when I eventually got to work for Marvel comics, I thought uh, that was uh, the apogee uh, of it all. Yes, uh, I thought reaching everybody with with uh, Marvel comics would be the absolute peak, but it actually turns out to be quite a, quite an unreliable and shaky way of making a living. So uh, running things like the Comic Festival, which was again about bringing comics to a wider audience that were current than we're currently seeing them, um, all buys into that same starting point in that you know, I want everybody to enjoy all the stuff I like and if they can all the stuff I do. How do you make these things accessible then for people as, as a starting base? 
Oh, it, it depends what things you mean. Uh, making comics accessible has changed over the years because when I started writing and drawing comics, you had to send your comic stuff off to the publishers that there were, um, which in Britain was like there was one company, uh, Fleetway or IPC as they used to be, who did 2000 AD comic and they did Oink comic. Um, and those were the two comics I tried to get my stuff into uh, when I was starting. And everybody would reject me. Oink would say, send it to 2000 AD. 2000 AD would say, send it to Oink. It took a whole year of sending something to everybody every week until one of them finally broke down and gave me work. Um, now, 30 or more years later, it's very different. because You can make yourself directly in contact with the public through social media and through um self-publishing and uh, print on demand and so other many other ways of getting your stuff out there so it's now possible to reach the audience without any gatekeepers in the way going on uh, there from what you said about you know back in the day it was a bit more difficult you had a couple of publishers and even to all these things that you've set up of course we've covered a couple of them or mentioned a couple here but you've done world record attempts as well do you get a kick mm. out of a challenge um not for the sake of the challenge itself. I think with a lot of the things that any of we sort of outreaching creative individuals do, you start off by wanting to do a thing and then it turns out to be slightly more difficult than you thought it was when you started. Uh, so uh, the challenge of, uh, for example, when I set up the comic festival in Bristol, uh, you know, the various challenges that that involved, getting sponsors in, getting people's money in, getting the public in. Uh, those were challenges that came as a matter of course. But the starting point was wanting to put on a great event. You know, I wouldn't have said, oh, I'd like a lot of challenges over the next six months. What can I do that will give me the most difficulty uh, in that time? Uh, oh, I know, a comic festival. It was the other way around. I start by having a thing that I think should happen. Um, and then the challenges just uh, present themselves. Do those kind of events, because I, I don't know how you find it or if it's something that you feel, but I imagine that drawing and illustrating that kind of stuff can be quite solitary. Uh, first of all, is mm. it? And second of all, does that help to bring together this community and just bring more of a social aspect to it? It's a very important point that writing and drawing comic books or writing novels or doing an awful lot of the creative visual arts is by nature solitary and uh, therefore uh, isolated. An awful lot of my friends and colleagues in comics, uh, we only meet each other when we go to comic festivals and comic events, which makes comic festivals and comic events very attractive to us. It is, for some of us, our social life. But yes, it's a thing to be wary of, the um, solitary and sedentary life of the solo creator. Um, a good thing to be able to strike a, a work-life balance. Of course, if you like being a hermit, then it's a perfect thing to do. I want to talk a bit about your approach to certain drawings. Uh, as I mentioned, and you've mentioned, you know, Marvel, the Beano, these aren't just kind of one image things. These are 10 images per page, sometimes multiple pages. And when you're doing so many of these images, but for these publications which have a distinct style sometimes, how do you make sure that you still come across in those? That's a very good question. The editors that I've been lucky enough to work with, especially on the Beano, were 
um, editors that liked to give the creators their uh, opportunity to shine. Uh, so especially the guy who got me into the Beano, which was a fellow called Ewan Kerr, and he was my my first star editor. He'd already, and this is what got my attention, he'd already been allowing a couple of creators to do stuff which looked unlike things that had been in the Beano before. There was a, a writer and artist called Mike Pierce who was doing these brilliant stories uh, with the Bass Street Kids, book-length Bass Street Kids stories. Well, I say book-length, that's comic-length, so it's 20 pages. But uh, they were like Asterix books. They were witty. Uh, they didn't talk down to the reader, which I'd always thought the Beano did. And uh, he had a really good comic style. And there were other creators at the time as well. People like Gary Northfield, who did Derek the Sheep, and Hunt Emerson, who was drawing Little Plum. And I looked at that work and I thought, well, I wonder if there's an opportunity for him to let me do my sort of thing in the Beano. Not to slavishly ghost the style of another Beano artist, because I don't think I would have enjoyed doing that. And I've got to say, the Beano don't pay you enough to sell your soul to that degree. But I was very lucky because he let me do stories that were written entirely by me, drawn entirely by me, and did my style of sense of humour. On the point of there being, you know, multiple pictures per page, and I, I presume some pretty frequent deadlines when you're doing stuff like that. Do you get, and, and, and even now with uh, the stuff you're doing now in the graphic novels, do you get anything like it, Illustrator's Block, or does it help when you're also writing some of these comics as well? Illustrator's Block, not so much, because the writing comes first, obviously. Uh, writer's Block, I largely got round in the Beano by doing a thing which I also do with the Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppet Theatre, and that is parodies parodies, homages, responses to things in real life. The Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppet Theatre uh, frequently do satirical or, um, you know, observational material. And so because something new happens every day, there's something new to talk about. So you can't really get stuck in that way. Uh, with the Beano work, I quite often parodied films and TV shows. So scary movie where I did all of the various horror tropes and characters frankenstein dracula i managed in the beano to get the texas chainsaw massacre and the wicker man and the blair witch project into a bash street kid story subsequent writers have done the same but i like to feel i was the first to break down those boundaries i did the bash street zombies in 2007 or 8 so i, I think that was uh, fairly ahead of its time but like i say uh, not an original idea in my head I started off by taking things that already existed and then playing with it. This, this one's hopefully a very brief question. How much spare time do you get? Well, I'm not entirely sure that I can categorise anything as spare time because I'm one of those people, and many creatives have this, I'm one of those people who turned their hobby into their job. And so I'm sort of always creating i mean i read but then i'm reading with a thought to writing i look at art with a thought to i don't know stealing other people's ideas i watch far too much tv and if that counts as time off then all you have to look do is look at my tv review of the year and add up the number of episodes that is that will tell you how much time i had doing nothing much but uh, watching the telly 
One final thing, when it comes to, you know, whether you get anything like a, a block or the spare time that you get, all that kind of stuff, does it help you in general that you throw yourself into a variety of creative endeavours? You've done stuff on stage uh, with the Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppets. You've obviously done plenty of drawing and writing. You've done, you know, TV as well is something that you've uh, embarked into as well. Does Does it help that you just throw yourself into so many different areas? Well... The psychology of creative and productive people in the arts is very interesting. A lot of people will refer to their addictive personalities and sometimes uh, ADHD and other things. A lot of us are driven to be doing the sort of nonsense that we're doing. Sometimes we're just driven by money, but I think more commonly people in the creative arts are driven by the desire to create the stuff that they enjoy creating that they enjoyed perhaps creating as kids that that was the case with me and then you just keep wanting to do more of it and so it's it's hard to see the chicken and the egg situation what comes first it's hard to imagine not being the sort of person who just does all the sort of stuff that I do Uh, because I've done an awful lot of this work when nobody would pay me for it and now I do an awful lot of this work and luckily, people pay me for it. In fact, in recent years, I've, I've done the the graphic, the Shakespeare graphic novels began as a project just out of love. I, I wanted to create the books. I did Kickstarter campaigns to run them. And then enough money came in to pay me to do them. But I did them sort of before anybody would pay me to do them. So, yes, it's, it's interesting to look at the reasons why we do the stuff that we do and quite what is behind us, both physically and mentally. I imagine with quite a few of these things as well, because of how long it takes to kind of put them together or for them to just naturally come about, a lot of patience is required as well. Yeah, I I use a phrase, the addiction kicks in with any of the creative endeavours I'm doing. Frequently in advance of them, I'm thinking, oh, I want to get around to this. Oh, I procrastinate. I'm thinking, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'll be able to start this properly. And I'm tentative and fearful about whether uh, I'm going to find the words or whether the artistic style is going to be uh, right or confident or so many things. Um, I'm trepidatious about in advance. And uh, yes, I will vacillate and uh, backpedal. But once you get stuck in, uh, this happens particularly, I find, with, with the drawing side. The addiction, as I say, kicks in and then you don't want to stop doing it. It's a very, very interesting psychological thing that not wanting to stop doing it. Again, I find a lot of people who write and draw and do things like myself find that same desire not to stop. Inability sometimes to stop. Do you think that's because in those moments, that's when the real expression comes in, the big creative release that you've been building up beforehand as it tries to come together? It will be chemicals. There will be endorphins. There will be serotonin. Uh, there will be uh, the fear of uh, cortisol. Is cortisol the stress hormone, or is that that cream that I rub onto my flaky skin? Anyway, there's, there's, there's a bad, there's a bad chemical that you try and avoid that you get when you're stressed, and there are good chemicals that you you get when you're enjoying it and it will come down entirely to those things i do not delude myself that there is anything more fanciful or heaven forfend spiritual about um the way we work and the reasons we do it we simply uh, drive ourselves because of the um, boiling pot of chemicals going on inside us 
and we strive to strike a balance between them. I, to date, fingers crossed, have been quite lucky in being able to do that. Just before we get onto your mental health shelf, I want to just ask one more question. Is it true that when you were starting out, as you were sending off uh, work to publishers, that one of the first jobs you got was for Viz? Yes, uh, my very first, I think it's my very first work. No, my very first work when I was still at school was in 2000 AD. I wrote a couple of Tharg's Future Shocks. I did Robusters and Hammerstein um, illustration in an annual. And uh, I wrote Captain Klepp, which appeared in the weekly comic 2000 AD. Uh, then I was off to art college. And after art college, um, sending work off to loads of people, uh, some stuff appeared in fanzines. A thing appeared in a comic called Warrior, uh, which comic enthusiasts will remember from the very early 80s. Warrior, which featured V for Vendetta and Marvel Man, and for a very short time featured a strip by me called Warrior, W-O-R-R-I-E-R. Um, and then I was in Viz, and I had a strip called Tarquin Hoylet, He Has to Go to the Toilet, which uh, is in one of the books on the shelf behind me, which I can't see now, but it's in Viz's big pink stiff one. Very nice. Do you remember that feeling when you got accepted by Viz? Because that must have been huge even then. Uh, yes, it's always an exciting thing to have finally broken through. Um, breaking through can, in, for many people, be the moment that launches them on their career. Or sometimes it can be a very promising start, which falters not long afterwards. In the case of me and Viz, it was the latter. I did talk and call it, he has to go to the toilet, and never managed to get anything else in Viz at all. But then along came the humour magazines that were like Viz. First of all, there was Oink comic, which I was in for a while. And then, of course, Oink built up and built up. And I thought, oh, this is marvellous. Oh, I have a full-time career ahead of me here. Because uh, I was doing a day job, and then I was in Oink, and I thought, oh, this is going to be great. And after 18 months of working in Oink, um, it went out of business. The final issue of Oink, a third of the comic is me. So I was right back to square one. Uh, my career has gone like that ever since. So after a while, the getting excited when you get accepted wears off because <laughs> you start thinking a few months ahead, thinking, this can't last. Let's move on to your mental health shelf. The things that bring you joy, escape of, well, contributed to good mental health in your life so far. I saw a little bit of assembly going on just before we started recording, but where would you like to start? Things that give me joy uh, go right back to perhaps the first thing I can remember reading, and that is Giles Annuals. I don't know if anybody else out there is familiar with Giles Annuals. People of a certain age you would have got these every Christmas. And Giles's daily cartoons appeared in a reprehensible newspaper. They appeared in the Daily Express. Um, although my parents got the Daily Express, they originally got it because my nana used to do the crossword in the Express. Uh, my mum and dad read the, the Telegraph themselves. But then for a while they were getting both newspapers. And uh, the Daily Express was worth getting only for Giles's cartoons. The most amazing and timeless cartoons. The book I'm holding in my hand here is a facsimile. Uh, this is his cartoons from the late 1940s. He carried on doing these cartoons every other day uh, in publication, uh, right up until his death in the 1990s. Um, so Giles' books, I can read and reread, and they are, they are visual time travel. 
if people out there haven't encountered Giles's books, go to any charity shop, well, many charity shops, secondhand shops, antique shops, and look for the pile of Giles books. You've probably often seen them and wondered, what on earth are those Giles on the side? Uh, well, thumb through and you are transported to the perfect encapsulation of the era in which these cartoons were drawn. They take you to the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and a little bit into the 90s. And um, comedy tells the story of the time better than anything else. Certainly better than historians who write their stuff about the time after the fact. Comedians, and Giles, um, the cartoonist, counts as that, have to do it at the time and it has to be right because you have to get it at the time. Uh, so time travel via Giles books. My first delight. One of those uh, you were flipping through some of the pages while you were talking about it. Um, and, and some of those pages had just one singular image. Do you find it? That's all they are. They're, mm. they're all one big one big picture. Do you find something pretty escapist about them then? You were talking then, of course, about them being time travel. Mm. Oh, Yes. Um, especially because they are so well rendered. I'm holding one up to the camera, which uh, listeners won't be able to see, but it shows uh, a person at a desk in a factory looking out at his factory with the buildings receding out into the distance. And Giles is a marvellous landscape artist, um, as well as being a perfect line artist. His line style of drawing is is not dissimilar from the French Ligne Claire style, which includes such things as Tintin books. And um, with simple lines, his faces convey the emotion and then his the world that he captures in his uh, scenarios and his landscapes um, are really unrivaled. I, mean, I find a lot of landscape painting uh, very boring. Uh, most landscape painting is fact in more than 100 years old, the, the stuff when it was there was something new about it anyway uh, but a landscape illustrator or cartoonist like Giles uh, is is the freshest most vibrant uh, landscape drawing I've ever seen Were they very formative for you then? Are they still formative for you now? Uh, yeah, and when you say formative uh, in, in my case that would be as a kid did I used to copy them a lot and yes I did in fact in more recent years I, I have still referred back regularly to Giles backgrounds in particular uh, if I'm trying to if I was trying to draw like trying to draw a cityscape and trying to say oh I want to get murky factory backgrounds whip out a Giles book from the 1950s and it's kind of oh yeah I'll just do it like that and I shall change it of course to make it distinctively in my own style but yeah oh so inspirational in so many ways you talked a bit about some of the details that you see. Obviously, there's, uh, you know, the joke, the text, the, the, the general image. But can you talk a bit about more about what else you see? I guess particularly from someone who's now doing this kind of thing for a living as well. What, what else I see in Giles' uh, cartoon? In, in, in the images, if you sit there and kind of look at something, do you see something more in depth as well, even if simply in the drawings? Yeah, the beauty of Giles's drawings are that in those single images, he would add extra details and in jokes in the background, giving you more to read. It's a, a thing that I often find in art galleries that uh, I feel guilty that I don't do justice to the work I'm looking at. I mean, if you think of the hundreds of hours that an artist has spent on a piece of work, um, mostly you give about 20 seconds, if you're lucky, to a canvas on a wall in a gallery. Um, 
when you've got something in a coffee table book uh, like this in front of you, it gets more attention, um, which is uh, which is which is why all of those great uh, old masters should really have been making coffee table books and doing cartoons in the Express instead of spending their time uh, exhibiting at the salons in Paris. But yeah, I. I find many, many pieces of work will actually reward increased viewing. Uh, one should do it more often. Um, do you know what? I don't think, I can't remember the last time I sat down with a big book, which is just paintings and looked at the paintings and poured over them. I did a lot as a teenager. And another thing, of course, we did that with was album covers. You would look in such depth and in such detail over and over again at these big 12-inch square bits of artwork, or wider uh, bits of artwork, and uh, really drink them in, really let your mind go wild on what they supposedly were giving to you, uh, symbolising, encapsulating. Anyway, Giles uh, will do. Shall we move on to item number two? Item number two. Right. Now, I mentioned uh, working for Marvel Comics, and when I was a kid, Marvel comics were the comics that I read. I'd started by reading uh, humorous, uh, funny books, comics, but I've moved on very, very early to Marvel comics. In fact, I was reading Marvel comics at the age of five because uh, I was reading a comic called Fantastic and another one called Terrific. And that's when they were around when I was five years old. And so I was looking at Fantastic Four. I was looking at Spider-Man and Thor and, and all. And that is just such exciting artwork. And then this continued through my teens, but... I grew out of the superheroes and I grew into this, uh, what I'm holding up now, Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck was my favourite comic book as a teenager. The book I have in my hands is the essential Howard the Duck, which is black and white reprints of the Howard the Duck comics from the 1970s. Uh, but I have the original colour comics as well, uh, somewhere up there on the shelf behind me. And uh, what I loved about Howard the Duck was that it felt grown up. Now, I'm 14, 15 years old when I'm reading Howard the Duck and rereading it now in the Essential Collection. You had to be there. It it hasn't aged that well. It's not that it's bad or offensive or slightly sexist, I think. I don't think it's racist or anything, but um, it's just kind of, well, it's comedy, you see, and comedy uh, dates worse than anything comedy especially when it's uh, satirical which is uh, how the ducks angle if you're not in america in 1976 if the political situation is not as the political situation was then then a lot of it goes over your head or you just think oh i sort of see what you're doing there very entertaining you know it's a thing of its time but uh, i was very lucky because i was there at the time Howard the Duck by Steve Gerber, the author, and most of it is, well, it's all by Steve Gerber, and then most of it is drawn by the fantastic artist Gene Colan. So much of it seems, even just from seeing one or two of the images there, just so, so expressive. And even, you know, I, I think of what I've seen of Marvel, a lot of it, of course, when it goes into the action or just, you know, close-ups on characters' faces, for years and years has been so, so detailed. Can you talk a bit about mm. that? About Does that add to the escapism? Yeah. Again, when I was talking about the Giles cartoon, talking about feasting your eyes on this stuff, my generation who grew up in the 70s and 80s, uh, my predecessors from the 60s and our successors in the 90s and so on, were the real ones who got the best 
of Marvel Comics and DC Comics. It's changed now because when I was a kid, if you wanted this exciting, colourful fantasy storytelling, it could only really be done in comics because there wasn't the technology to make it happen on the screen. Now it's changed with the game technology of the last 30 years and the CGI technology on the screen of the last 30 years. Now, if Thor wants to fly over the bridge to Asgard on a winged horse, it can just happen. I mean, it costs a few million quid and you need thousands of people to do it, but it can be done. And from the point of view of a reader or a viewer or a child, that is irresistible. You can't not. If I, God, I can't imagine being 12 years old and the Marvel movies being out there. That would be mind-blowing. When I was 12 years old, only the Marvel comics were out there. Um, we got weekly black and white reprints of the Marvel comics, and I used to get 10 of those a week and have changed from my £1 pocket money. Tell that to the kids today. But we also got the American uh, colour editions. They were harder to get, uh, but you could get them. And everything was there. And so the creativity of these writers and artists was flowing onto these pages, and we were spoilt rotten. In the movies now, we've just passed peak Marvel movies uh, where there's 30 odd movies and there's the TV series. That's going to be scaling down slightly now. But even then, that paled into insignificance compared to the amount of stuff there was in the Marvel comics. Because, of course, you had the previous I, the stuff from the 1960s. I was reading when it was 10 years old and 15 years old already. And then I was reading the stuff from the 1970s and into the 80s when it was new being created every week. They were creating 30 new comics a week, mostly rubbish. Most of these comics were not very well written. Some of them were very poorly drawn. They were all atrociously coloured. The colour was all over the place. It never registered with the lines. And the black lines were never black in the first place. The printing was so poor. But the ideas that got to find their way onto a page, it, that was what I absorbed. And Howard the Duck is a particular example of what I liked best about Marvel, is that it wasn't superheroes. Because the superheroes had happened in the 1960s, and of course they kept on going. But by the time I was reading these Marvel comics, and we're talking about 1975, 6, 7, 8, 9, um, the superheroes were a bit passe, because even I could see they were, they were sort of doing what they'd done 15 years ago. And it wasn't the great writers and artists who were doing it by then. I mean, Steve Ditko and Stan Lee had been doing... Uh, Spider-Man 15 years earlier, uh, but now they weren't. Uh, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee had been doing the Fantastic Four and the X-Men 15 years ago, and now they weren't. Uh, and although some things had a great renaissance, like the X-Men uh, under new creator Chris Claremont and John Byrne, in that 1970s gap, it was anything that wasn't superheroes, that was the best stuff. There was Dracula Lives, which was just Dracula, horror story. He overlapped with Doctor Strange, and Doctor Strange didn't tend to overlap with the other superheroes. He was really something other. And then there was Conan the Barbarian, loosely adapted from a series of books and then expanded upon further, uh, which had nothing to do with the superhero universe at all. And there were other comics uh, that I loved along those lines. Um, there was the Planet of the Apes adaptations. Uh, there was Werewolf by Night. There was the Frankenstein adaptations. They did a whole line of horror comics as well as a line of humor comics as well. Uh, so Howard the Duck is slap bang in the middle of this we don't just do superheroes era. Of, of Marvel Comics. And that was the stuff I liked. There was hardly a superhero comic, uh, I think, that I, that I bought. Uh, the 
X-Men, when that got good, was about the only one. The rest were all left field, esoteric, satirical, experimental, other stuff. I want to go to something that you've mentioned a couple of times now. You mentioned Giles, it's black and white. Howard the Duck, the reprints that you grew up with were black and white. Does that does that speak to the power that those images had, that they didn't need colour? As they were, they were fine. That's very interesting. Um, comics in Britain were black and white because black and white was cheaper. Um, there were very few colour comics. Of course, when the comics were done in colour, we in Britain then did them more expensively than anyone else. In the 1950s, we did a thing called Eagle Comic, which was done in this photogravure printing process, which meant it cost more than any other comic in the world. And then in the 1960s, there was the comic TV 21, which had the Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet and Stingray uh, stories in. And again, painted artwork, gloriously painted artwork, but it made the comic cost more than anybody else's comics. But mostly uh, your weekly comics were black and white. Uh, which is just an interesting quirk of how these things worked out. And so that was the British tradition. And so I grew up with these black and white line drawings. But what happened for my generation of people, uh, artists in particular, is we were reading these black and white reprints of 1960s Marvel comics and therefore could see them slightly better, slightly more clearly, and on a slightly larger page, because they were A4 rather than the American small comic size, which meant that the people who went on a decade later to be the lead artists on 2000 AD comic had been raised by learning their artwork from really well-printed black and white uh, American Marvel comics, which the, the, their American contemporaries had seen the smudgy, badly printed colour versions. Shall we move on to item number three? Item number three on my list is, again, comics. And uh, this was the best comic strip writing and storytelling that ever there has been, Asterix. Asterix by René Gassini and Albert Derso, uh, started in 1958 or 1959. And um, the character is still produced to this day. Uh, René Gassini, the author, died in 1979. So it's only the first 20 years worth of books that have been, until recently, worth reading. The last 40 years worth of books have been rubbish because Albert Uderzo, sorry, Albert Uderzo, you're one of the greatest artists of all time, but you're not one of the greatest writers of all time. Uh, so the books that he wrote and drew are nicely drawn but badly written. But the ones written by René Gassini and drawn by Albert Uderzo are just the best thing you can do with the printed page. The French tradition, of course, was full colour comics, and uh, we were grateful of that, even though it made the books quite expensive. But the comedy storytelling, he writes, uh, each episode is, a, I would say, is about the content of a half-hour TV show, if you were to adapt it. Uh, but really, so well-written. Of the great comedy writers of all time, I would put uh, René Gassini in the top ten. And you have to put Albert Adesso there with him because comic strip storytelling is done by the two talents the writer and the artist Gassini's writing could have turned out rubbish in the hands of another artist and as we discovered Adesso's uh, drawing turned out rubbish when he did the writing so it takes those two to make it great but it is so great you say that it was great and then not so great but it's kind of coming back a bit is uh, what I believe you said you stuck with it you, you stayed with Asterix even you know 
Uh, no, I didn't buy. I didn't oh. buy most of, most of the books for the last forty years. Okay. I bought a few, like one a decade, and discovered how poor they were, and stopped buying them. The most recent book, though, I am told, has two new creators, and I don't have the latest book by him. But the new author, I am told reliably by the reviewers, is as good as Gossini. So, well done him. Did you ever watch any of the Asterix films from the seventies and eighties, which kind of kept the same yeah, style it was as the books? It was, it was done as a, serialised as a TV show. It was done these uh, 20 minute episodes, uh, Asterix the Girl. They adapted the first book into a series of cartoons. And I remember watching those as a kid. I think I watched those before I bought my first Asterix book, uh, which would explain why I was slightly familiar with Asterix when it first appeared. But mostly through the adaptations, uh, struggle to do justice to the source material. One of the problems you have with adapting anything like this is that. Uh, things are true to their art form. Uh, it's frequently said that there are uh, great films usually made from not very good novels. Uh, I'm given to believe that The Godfather and Jaws are not respected as the greatest works of literature, but they are the greatest films uh, because it gives the person in the second medium something to work with. There's a lot of comic books that people think, oh, that would make such a good movie. But it wouldn't. Mouse by Art Spiegelman, which I've got on the shelf behind me here, has not, I think, been made into a movie. And I think it would be a dreadful movie if it was. Watchmen was made into, I think, a not very good movie because it was a slavish copy of the original. One art form sometimes does justice to the other, but usually the art form has to make it its own. And so Asterix, The Mansions of the Gods, was the best adaptation I've seen that was done with three-dimensional CGI animation and voice actors, the British version of which includes Greg Davis playing a centurion. Uh, the original uh, actors, of course, would be French. Uh, they, they got the humour right in adapting Mansions of the Gods, which is written by Reddy Gassini, of course. It comes back, it feels, to that kind of idea of satire a little bit with Asterix. Are they satirical, if I remember correctly? Uh, that's very interesting because there are satirical elements that I definitely didn't get as a kid. I've gone through generations, waves of rediscovering Asterix and discovering the jokes that I didn't get the first time. There were then uh, puns that when I first read the books and I would be 10 years old when I first read them, I didn't get the puns. I never got any of the jokes that were based on Latin translations because I didn't do the Latin at school. When you're looking at these books, going back to them, reading them, now now as an adult, realising these jokes that you didn't quite see the first time around, do you still find yourself going back to this nostalgic state, kind of your inner child when you're looking back at them? The Giles books uh, are nostalgic because uh, you're imagining this world of the 60s and the 70s. Uh, and it's, it's pre-nostalgic because I'm imagining a time before I was even there. Asterix books, it's slightly different. I don't go back to my childhood reading of them. I go straight into the world that those two storytellers are telling. So the story, it's ancient Rome, it's ancient Europe uh, in an imaginary 50 BC, a, a cartoon uh, 50 BC. But we were talking about the satirical aspect, weren't we? There, were, there are references to French actors and uh, certain movies that I have only in the last decade or so realised were even there because someone's done a... a YouTube video about them, or someone's done a story that I've found on Facebook, which has explained to me why certain characters in the background were drawn with certain faces. They were parodies of a TV presenter, a movie star, and so on. Shall we go to item number four? 
Right, I don't know we've done the comics now. Relax, kids. No more comics. Oh, here's something that's uh, I, I'm sure still exists, but uh, used to be bigger back in the day. Sheet music. And this is a particular bit of sheet music. Now, we have a lot of sheet music uh, left over from my, my dad uh, being a piano player. I, I've got a piano player and I've got his collection of sheet music, but I, I rather, largely don't read sheet music. This is the sheet music for Lucky Stars by Dean Friedman. When I was a teenager, Dean Friedman, a singer-songwriter whose biggest hits were Lucky Stars, Ariel, and Well, Well, Said the Rocking Chair, um, he had a really big and successful year in the pop charts in 1978 and into 1979. And then his career varied and uh, he did a variety of things in subsequent years. I, though, was the biggest Dean Friedman fan. Uh, he, he reads on the, on the album cover He's reading Howard the Duck comic. So that's, we were simpatico even then. Thing is, um, he was in New York being a singer-songwriter and being famous and appearing on top of the pops. And I was in Leicestershire being a teenager. Then when I did the Scottish falsetto sock puppet theatre, my space was the social media of the day. And my Scottish falsetto sock puppet theatre started to get quite big on MySpace and YouTube. Uh, this is around 2006, 2007, 2008. And amazingly, Dean Friedman started posting uh, supportive comments and saying, hey, th these guys are great. And then in 2008, he had me, uh, he had the Scottish Falsetto Stock Puppet appear as his support act in Glasgow. And then um, we've stayed in touch since. In 2020, uh, in the lockdown, in the pandemic, he started doing regular zoom shows and the socks guested on those and then the socks did zoom shows and dean guested on those and we've been working together on and off ever since i performed just this year at his song fest uh, which is in the uk in the summer and um he this is some signed sheet music i can't remember when i got him to sign it for me but uh, he signed my sheet music and uh, my childhood hero uh, became my grown-up hood friend what I love is just the joy that you spoke about all of that with. You have a huge smile across your face just the whole time. Like, it, it, Obviously, I can see this. People hearing will be able to hear just the pure <laughs> joy that radiated from you during that. Yeah. Well, Dean Friedman is a great guy. He does great music. Everybody get his latest album, uh, American Lullaby, uh, which he recorded in 2021, his, his lockdown album. And if you get the chance to see him live, uh, especially if you remember his music from its heyday, um, those singer-songwriter days. He was the best. He, he had an, well, he still has. Uh, when he was recording those particular big hits, um, he had a wit about his music, which comes from things that we turn out to have a mutual love of. He's a big fan of Tom Lehrer, the humorous singer-songwriter from the early 1960s, um, as well as Marvel Comics and Howard the Duck. So um, Dean, in his songwriting, has always drawn on a lot of the humorous things that inspire me, too. Uh, he's able to write with greater depth, though, because he writes emotional songs, he writes personal songs. And he's a brilliant musician, by the way. He plays piano, he plays guitar. I think at various times he's played almost every instrument on uh, one or other of his albums, but piano and guitar, primarily. Brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, um, what's it like to, and particularly initially, uh, as you say, when it when he shared or supported some of your stuff on MySpace, what was that like to first have that support 
and then become that person's support act. Yeah, that was fantastic. They say never meet your heroes. And I don't know if there's many other examples of me ever having done so. Uh, so I've struck lucky. Uh, one childhood hero I meet and he turns out to be as good as you thought he was. Who knows? Well, do you know, another, one other person I almost came close to meeting was Sting, because I was a big fan of Sting's music at the time. And many years later, I actually walked r around Broadcasting House in London to avoid having to bump into Sting, because he was coming out of the other door, but he was being mobbed by fans, because uh, I wouldn't have known what to say. So, and I've, Actually, there's, there's quite a lot of comedians and actors who I've known that I wouldn't have anything to say to them when I have sort of encountered them, so I've sort of avoided them. But anyway, I met a hero, and it worked out well. I, I like how the two that you've named particularly, uh, Dean Friedman and Sting, and obviously I know you just said that you kind of tried to avoid Sting, but still they're, they're music-related <laughs> instead of kind of comic-related. Do, do you think that's yeah. helped with Dean? Uh, I don't know. Music, actually, is a big part of my life, less so than some of my friends. I've got, um, I've got friends who are real musicologists. My best mate, Steve, he's got a turntable. He's got all his vinyl out. And he sits down and he regularly listens to it. I've got two turntables in this house. Neither of them has been plugged in this year. I cannot remember. The, well, I, sorry, I can remember the last time I sat down and put an album on and listened to it. It was last year when I got the turntable as a Christmas present. Um, yeah, so music in my developing years, my teenage years, was such a big deal. Um, I don't have eclectic musical tastes. I just absorbed everything I listened to. Turns out I probably had uh, very narrow musical tastes because I liked things that were in the pop charts. Uh, when they do that show on Radio 2 where they run down the, the pop charts of this week in a, in a past year, um, <laughs> if, it's, if I was aged 14, I've got the top 10, you know. Uh, my, my other cool mates would have a really esoteric album who even now you'd never have heard of. And they'll say, oh, didn't you buy that then? Oh, I liked them before they were famous. Oh, I liked them and they never got famous. Uh, I can't wear that badge of honor because everybody I like got quite famous or already was quite famous. Anyway, but I did love a lot of music. They, they strike me as kind of the, the teenage years particularly is when I think you're music taste properly develops where you find what you like it's the kind of stuff that um i, I don't know if you've seen the film blinded by the light it's um the, this kid yes discovers... safraz manzur very good mm. and and there are those moments where they're literally you know running down the street singing i think it's born to run and that's kind of the connection you slightly form with some of these art you know for me that's billy joel i still love billy joel um well, that's very interesting because Billy Joel, at the same the same Christmas that I got Dean Friedman's Well, Well Said, the Rocking Chair album, uh, the other album that I got was The Stranger by Billy Joel. Um, frustratingly for Dean, The Stranger by Billy Joel went on to become one of the top 100 best-selling albums of all time. And Well, well Said, the Rocking Chair didn't. It deserved to. But yes, I was also a big Billy Joel. Do you listen to music when you're writing or drawing or just coming up with stuff? Well, that's the other thing. Uh, I've listened to a lot less music than I ever did. When I'm writing, it has to be in silence because my attention span is such that I will get distracted uh, by uh, the content of music. So I write in silence. and A lot of my creative work in the, in the office is writing. Then when I'm drawing, I have podcasts on. I tend now to prefer listening to the spoken word and listening to something which has got some sort of narrative or, or uh, progresses 
uh, and especially when I'm driving, it'll be podcasts I listen to, uh, because there's something about music and music radio that means that every three minutes you're back where you were. And so a piece of music, however entertaining, and then three minutes later, I'm reminded that I'm still on that journey and I've only gone, you know, three minutes worth of miles further. Whereas if I'm listening to, be it a quiz like Brain of Britain or be it a 10-part podcast, that's some of the most odd things. I've recently listened to podcasts about sportsmen getting involved in crime, um, true, true crime podcast stories. Um, but uh, 10 half-hour episodes later, you're 250 miles down the road and it's flown by. Do you write and draw in the same place or do you divide them up? Uh, yes, same place. I uh, work on my desk here. I have a, a little sloping tabletop drawing board that I can put my artwork page on, which is slightly relieving to your back because of the angle you work at. Uh, I plonk that down on the desk, the very desk that I'm talking to you from. So if I'm drawing, I'm drawing here. And if I'm writing, then the laptop moves into the centre and I tippy-tappy-tippy-tappy. It's all done here. I also do my Zoom podcast from here. So if I was performing the Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppet Theatre Zoom show, I would move out this swivel chair, replace it with a little wooden chair. And then I've got the sock puppet frame, which goes right here. And the socks will wiggle around there. It all happens in these few square feet um, around which I swivel. So it's easy for you to kind of divide things up then and not get, you know, go from, oh, right, now's for writing, but I should be drawing. Or it, it, It's easy for you to kind of divide those up, I guess. Yes, I also have the sort of attention span, which means I really have to finish one thing before I'm able to start the next. So um, I just had to do a little uh, a portion of the new book that I'm working on, and then I had to send it off to someone to look at. And I could only work on that until I'd sent it off to her to look at, and then it was hers, and then my desk was now cleared to work on the next thing. I'm not very good at keeping a number of plates spinning or pots on the boil in that way. One task at one time. Shall we move on to your final item then? Ah, the final item. This is the one. I can't do the voice, but oh, I'm holding nice. the camera a Dalek. In my room, were I to spin the camera of the laptop round, you would be able to see on the other side of the room another Dalek, one TARDIS, one Cyberman. Amazingly, I'm quite light on TARDIS and Cyberman in, in my current office. Oh, there's a TARDIS bag over there. If we were to go out onto the staircase, there's a bookshelf at the top of the staircase, which has got, I think, four TARDISes, because it's got a TARDIS money box on every shelf. Um, there's a Cyberman helmet that talks over there, and oh, there's more of that stuff. I was a childhood Doctor Who fan, and then in 2005, when it came back, I was a grown up Doctor Who fan. Doctor Who has always been there. I've worked for Doctor Who magazine, and I worked for Doctor Who Adventures in the 2010s, I worked for Doctor Who magazine in the 90s, and um, I have just always done Doctor Who stuff when I was 10 years old. Uh, one of the comics I did as a very young kid had a character which I purported to have invented myself called The Doctor. <laughs> Fooling nobody. It was very clearly just Doctor Who, but I'd changed the title. He had robot, pointy robots called Cronex. Yes, I had invented those entirely myself. And on YouTube, you will find a video of, of me in my homemade Dalek costume. Again, I'm, uh, by the look of it, I'm 11 years old. And I've got, it's, it's a plastic 
uh, washing basket thing on the top, and it's got slots around the side, and then a, a sink plunger and a couple of toilet roll holders to make into Dalek arms. And uh, you can clearly tell that I couldn't get good photographic reference because there's the wrong number of blobs down the side of the Dalek because I had no place to check it. I'm that old. There was no Doctor Who magazine when I was making my first Dalek. Doctor Who is, at least in your live work with uh, the Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppets, I, I feel one of the things that you've homaged the most, I think the end of time versions that you've done are some of the most popular things on that channel. Like Last night I was giggling away at the This is Peter Capaldi uh, we're introducing you to. That, that's a great <laughs> video. I just it, yes. It's really stuck with you. Now that's it? It, that, that's a very good example. If anybody Googles the Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppet Theatre doing Peter Capaldi as the Doctor, we did that last Live on stage at the Edinburgh Fringe, because it was during the Edinburgh Fringe that Peter Capaldi was announced as the new Doctor. And of course, he was the guy from the thick of it. He played Malcolm Tucker. And so the funniest thing we did in that show, although it was a very funny show, uh, but the funniest thing we did in Socks on Space was the Socks being sweary as Peter Capaldi, as Malcolm Tucker, as Doctor Who. It's dated now because of course we now know what Peter Capaldi's uh, Doctor Who went on to be like and uh, it just now looks like some sock puppets unnecessarily and gratuitously swearing uh, while also mentioning Weeping Angels and uh, Cybermen but uh, yeah uh, the socks also appear as easter eggs on DVDs because uh, of my friend Peter, Peter Crocker, who is one of the restoration team who restores old Doctor Who episodes. He restores Dad's Army as well and lots of stuff on the telly. And he got me on to Doctor Who DVDs, the War Games. If you've got the DVD issue of that from 2009, 10, 11, the socks appear on there. We appeared on Horns of Nyman. We appear on some Peter Davison's. I can't remember which ones. Uh, we crop up here and there. With, you know, the, the Doctor Who work that you've just mentioned that you've done there with the socks and also just all the general drawing and writing work that you're doing, are you would you say you're living your childhood dream? Yes. You see, this is the thing. This is the thing that a lot of people, when they're choosing their careers, if people do really choose careers, uh, when you end up doing what you end up doing, I have enjoyed the content of what I do because I have been able to do all the stuff that as a kid I thought would be great to do you know there was me 11 years old saying oh I'd really love to write and draw comic books that would be the greatest thing well when I worked for Marvel it was quite disillusioning and disheartening it turned out to be a conveyor belt of substandard productivity but I achieved that dream for what it was worth um I would have loved to have worked on Doctor Who magazine and I did I wanted to make people laugh and I do I wanted to uh, create stories that didn't exist before, and I have done. I wanted to publish my own books, to have books with your stuff in. You know, so that's some people's dream, ambition. And to be able to do that as a job, yeah, absolutely great. Even before we started recording, from pretty much the moment you came on this call, but even, and, and earlier in this conversation, I asked, is it easy for you to put yourself into your work? But through your work, before you even came onto this call, with your performances, I'm, I'm trying to build up some question here. I don't know what the build up is, but still, uh, the question <laughs> I'm wanting to ask is, you are, you know, so energetic and positive and very much seemingly unashamedly yourself. Is this easy to do? Has it always been easy to do? Well, um, 
for someone like myself, and I think you find quite a lot of us in the comedy industry, uh, we're vain and egocentric and love the sound of our own voice. So uh, for someone like that, uh, you seem to just create your own pleasure by rabbiting on and enjoying having somebody as a sort of captive audience. Um, that's self-satisfying. Some very sensible people use those skills of, you know, being able to string a sentence together and turn it into uh, successful business endeavours. I mean, I have used my scale skills as a salesman before now to actually sell stuff. And if I did more of that, you know, I, I could be living uh, in you know, a billionaire's mansion by now. I'm not, I'm not doing badly. I've got, I've got you know, bookshelves. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, uh, as it is, uh, what I do, I do, I, I enjoy doing. What I do, I enjoy doing. And so, you know, there's there's plenty of people who don't get that lucky. And so I, I'd be happy enough to settle for that. As it is, I also, you know, sometimes have uh, commercial success <laughs> with coming up with my nonsense, which is uh, double the player. And just before we go, just before we wrap things up, do you want to remind us of your items one more time? Right. The items that gave me joy were, in reverse order, a Dalek representing my lifelong love of Doctor Who. The sheet music from Dean Friedman's Lucky Stars, representing my love of the music of Dean Friedman and my joy in having uh, someone who I loved as a child become a friend in my grown-up years. Asterix book. Uh, just to champion the quality of this incredible achievement in comic book creation. Giles, um, similarly, something that really transports me and that I would recommend to anybody who wanted to appreciate uh, comic art. And Howard the Duck, the comic that I read as a kid, which uh, you will struggle to derive any pleasure from yourself now. Uh, you had to be there. You've just lifted up all these items and shown them, and you've kind of flicked through a number of them throughout this recording. So with them particularly in front of you right now, what goes through your mind when you look at them all? Uh, with the essential Howard the Duck, what goes through my mind is I, I'll have to give those a read again and see if they if there are some bits that stand up well, and then I'll, I'll quote them to people and try and get people excited about the idea of Howard the Duck. Uh, with the Giles annuals, a regular thing I'll do, a Sunday morning is quite a good time for this. Breakfast in bed, whip out a Giles annual. You really can just lose yourself in a Giles annual, and I will regularly do that. Asterix books, uh, nary a month goes by when I don't read or reread an Asterix book, or thumb through the backgrounds uh, just to remind myself how well backgrounds can be drawn uh, i've recently been striving to do books which don't have backgrounds for that reason uh, they're sometimes just too hard oh and doctor who i'm delighted that doctor who is back on the telly so i'm a very happy bunny and hopefully my my real uh, dream with uh, doctor who is that it will become as popular with kids as it was in that 2005 to 2010 period uh, when David Tennant uh, was the Doctor the first time, uh, because uh, I like it being a popular show. I don't like it being an unpopular show that only me and fellow hardcore nerds like. I want it to be the one that kids in the playground talk about. The best thing was in a school, uh, this would be way back in 2006 or seven, when a kid had two Star Wars lightsabers and was using them 
to pretend to be a Dalek. That was when the world was spinning well on its axis. Kev, thank you so, so much for joining me. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you for having me, Jamie. Every time during that conversation you hear me say the words Scottish falsetto sock puppet theatre, and indeed whenever Kev said it as well, you can kind of hear my brain pause just for a brief second as it goes over the words, and so am I, and so is he, which is what they introduce themselves with at the start of each video. I'll link that YouTube channel in the description of the podcast, wherever that may be, wherever you're listening, alongside the very sweary Peter Capaldi unveiled as Doctor Who video that we mentioned in the interview, and of course some of Kev's socials too. Uh, he did mention afterwards uh, Richard III is his latest graphic novel adaptation of Shakespeare, and he mentioned, oh, I should have mentioned that or plugged it probably a bit more. I said, don't worry, I'll, I'll give it a mention on the podcast in the outro. So this is me doing that now. There are a number of works by Kev F. Sutherland available now, including the recently released graphic novel adaptation of Richard III. We also afterwards had a pretty serious conversation about kind of changing attitudes in comedy, particularly stand-up over the years, the way that things have developed, uh, particularly kind of like the shock comics or just the general air of shock stand-up in the 90s, uh, just going in trying to be edgy in a way. Uh, a very interesting conversation there. Uh, he did say, uh, kind of jokingly, make sure to say how eloquent I was. And no, absolutely, I can uh, very much testify to that. It was a fascinating conversation to have. Very much enjoyed it, as of course I did talking to him about the items on his mental health shelf. I think this is undeniably the nerdiest episode we've had so far. Uh, I, I didn't dare ask about the Howard the Duck film though of course, but an absolute joy to kind of watch and listen to Kev talking about these things holding them up to the camera, flicking through the pages of some of the books um, and just having a huge, huge smile on his face. I think you can hear it actually listening back to the recording, uh, just hear the huge smile on his face on a number of occasions throughout that conversation uh, and he did say once or twice he said look you're gonna have a lot to edit here I'm really really sorry and I kind of said what I said to a number of guests so they you know if you're passionate about something if you really love something that comes across in the way that you're speaking about it and that joy comes through and generally if that's the case people will listen because of just, you know, how passionately and joyously you're speaking about something like this. Um, and, and absolutely, I found that to be the case here with Kev. A wonderful, wonderful time talking to him. It flew by for me. And as I say, quite a fascinating person to talk to afterwards as well. But I've gone on long enough. Time to properly wrap things up. Once again, thank you very much to Kev for joining me. Uh, thank you to you for listening. Uh, hopefully a lot to come over the course of this next year. This is being released in January of 2024, this podcast. Hence why say that if you're listening at some point down the line in the future but regardless thank you for listening whenever and wherever you have listened and i'll be back next month hopefully with a much shorter outro another guest another set of items and another mental health shelf goodbye for now